Before we start today, I just want to let you know this episode does talk about some adult content. So if you have kids around, then you might want to give this a listen on your own first. Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the Netflix movie, Dolomite Is My Name. Directed by Craig Brewer and released in 2019, Dolomite Is My Name is a biographical film about the comedian, singer, actor, and film producer Rudy Ray Moore. In the movie, we see Rudy, who's played by Eddie Murphy, as he performs his controversial style of comedy filled with so much profanity that most mainstream radio stations and record labels wouldn't even touch it. His comedy was delivered in a poetic rhythm that would go on to inspire many musicians and earn him the nickname, The Godfather of Rap. But how well did the Netflix movie show the true story? To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with Mark Jason Murray. He was the research consultant for the movie and is the author of Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, the authorized biography of Rudy Ray Moore, a.k.a. Dolomite. Before we chat with Mark, it's time to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Rudy sold his records out of the back of his trunk. Number two, Rudy didn't record his comedy album with a live band like we see in the movie. Number three, Rudy started performing at the age of 42. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Mark Jason Murray about the historical accuracy of Dolomite Is My Name. Since filmmakers always need to change things around in order to fit years of someone's life into just a couple hours, if you were to take a step back and give the movie an overall letter grade for historical accuracy, what would it get? That's really something that's, that's kind of hard to do because it's not a documentary. You know, people have to remember that. Um, even on my own account, uh, I'll admit that having worked on Rudy's story for 30 years, I was very uh, detail-oriented in all of my research, and it was very hard for me to uh, let go of those details. When they had finished their script, Scott and Larry, who wrote the film, uh, went down and, and sat in their office, and they let me read, read the script. And I remember specifically, we sat down on their couch and, you know, what did you think? And, and one of the first things that I said was, you know, you got Rudy referencing Deep Throat here, but Deep Throat was in 1972, yet Eat Out More Often, the album that he recorded was in 1970. And, it, you know, I was even guilty of the, uh, uh, you know, of being so detail ingrained in the details that they basically sat you know, kind of sat me down and, and said, you know, Mark, you know, we, we have a lot of stuff to, to uh, go through in this movie. You know, we have to, we're trying to give it a, a point of reference, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, 
you know, that was a, a good, I, I got, t- you know, talked down off the ledge a little bit there by uh, Scott and Larry. Um, but as far as a letter grade is concerned, honestly, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, it, it, I think it makes that too uh, definitive of, of, a, uh, of, a, of a grade, we'll say. Um, you know, you, you do have quite a bit of material and people to introduce in that, that two hour film, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, the average film runs an hour and a half yet we get, you know, two hours worth of Rudy's story. Um, the film itself, if I were to put it in, um, uh, in a time frame, would be late 1969 through the mid 1975 after the, the film Dolomite had its, uh, theatrical full theatrical national release. Originally, when I saw Ed Wood that Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski wrote for Tim Burton, as they believe that was 1996. I was a big fan of Ed Wood, still am, uh, had a lot of knowledge of him and his work at that time. So when I saw that film, I, I, it was like I understood what they were doing. There's, there were certain things in that movie where you have Bill Murray's character of John Breckenridge, who is uh, in the entire film as part of Edward's crew, but yet in reality he only showed up for the filming of Plan Nine from Outer Space because I think he was a roommate of somebody and they just needed somebody to play that part. Um, so I started to kind of understand the way that they they functioned when they were writing. Uh, another perfect example is when they did People versus Larry Flint, which is another spectacular film. In their commentary for the movie, I believe it's Larry that mentions that Edward Norton is really just a combination of multiple lawyers that Larry Flint had. You're not going to spend half of a movie introducing a brand new lawyer every time Larry goes to court. You know, so... There, there has to be some of these things that, uh, that uh, you know, I'll say are, are stretched for entertainment purposes. Um, some of the things that are inaccurate in Dolomite is my name. I really think that Scott and Larry brilliantly uh, brought those things together. Um, if I could point out maybe, you know, one specific thing that I, that I just, I, I love in the movie is when the crew meets Duraville Martin. You know, in, in the film, they, they come across him in a strip club. And the reality is that Jerry Jones already knew Duraville Martin and had brought Duraville in as director because Duraville had yet to direct a film. So Duraville saw this as an opportunity to direct something. But Rudy was smart enough to know that Durville already had some type of marquee name having appeared in movies with Fred Williamson and Pam Greer. So Rudy said, you know, you can direct, but I also want you to co-star in this with me. But that's not as exciting as coming across Durville in a strip club, you know, and, and having Wesley Snipes do, you know, that incredible uh, impersonation or however you want to put it of, you know, the, the personality that he brings to Durville's character. Um, Wesley was kind of the, the unknown gem of the film 
when, when you see it, you know, I was actually a little bit, uh, uh, again, I'm so detail oriented. And the first time I saw it, it was like, you know, just, whoa, uh, you know, this is not the, the Durville Martin that I would have expected. Um, if, you know, I never was able to speak with him. He died early on. So he wasn't of course available for, for my book. Um, but that performance that he gives is, is just brilliant. And, and I think a lot of the reviews that people almost say that he kind of almost stole the movie. You mentioned the, the dates there, and I wanted to ask you about that, because at the beginning of the movie, we see Rudy working at a record shop called Dolphins, and he kind of seems to be disappointed with how his life is going. The impression that I got was he's pretty much just paying the bills, and he can't really he's not really achieving what he wants. So we don't really get a lot of backstory to Rudy up until the timeline of the movie, which I believe is what you just said, like starting in maybe 1969. Can you... Give us an overview of his life up until the timeline of the film. Well, Rudy's entire life was performing, I guess you could say, since the time he was 15. I mean, he, he had even sang and read poetry in church when he was a, a child. But uh, he went to Cleveland when he was 15 and entered a talent show. And that was kind of like where the bug started. And, and for the rest of his life, he was an entertainer. He had done anything for you know some of his early things were were little scams i guess you could say like uh, he would do fortune telling you know tea, you know they would do tea leaf tellings where they would put the tea leaves in the in the tea and then they pour out the water and however the the formation of the leaf stuck on the the cup would be how they would determine what your fortune was um you know one of it, he usually uh, he admitted, and, and we discussed this in the book, that, that he usually knew the people that he was telling the fortunes on, or they, they weren't aware. But so he, you know, had insider information that he was giving them that that uh, you know worked worked in his favor. Uh, he was some sort of a dancer. Uh, Ru- Rudy always liked to embellish uh, his greatness. Uh, he sometimes he was his greatest PR agent. Um, he would do what he called adagio dancing, and they mentioned that in Dolomite is my name, um, where he would just do these kind of wild African dances. I don't believe that they really had uh, anything that we could remotely consider rhythm. They were more just like these wild shoulder shaking, head shaking dances um, that he would do with sometimes with another with a female. Um, Rudy was known for standing on his head and doing a split in a chair or something like that. Um, he was always doing something that was, uh, I guess you could say outrageous. Um, he tried his hand at singing in the, in the fifties and sixties. They mentioned that of course, in the film, uh, he had already recorded a, a couple comedy albums, uh, by the time Dolomite is my name, uh, starts. Um, but at the time that, that the movie does take place when it does start, his career was was dead. It was completely stagnant. He had not had any kind of releases in a few years. I think by that point, he hadn't had a vocal 45 in about five years. Um, his, he hadn't had a comedy release, I think since 66 and that was a dud. Um, so he, he really was, uh, down and out. Um, he did have his, his, uh, 
you know, hosting. He was pretty much a host at the Californian club. Um, but he, uh, he wasn't really doing, doing anything. So as far as, as his mindset at that time, he was feeling forgotten. He was feeling like his, his career was over. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's true. Like, is, is this where I'm at? Am I just a manager of a record store now? The movie does kind of hint at some of that. I think it was a conversation with uh, his aunt that she mentions, you know, yeah, the, the singer, the fortune teller, all these different things that, that he's tried. So I got the impression that um, his life up until that point was uh, very colorful. He had a, he did a lot of different things and was, was he bouncing around between those different things because he wasn't really happy with just one of them or did he really just enjoy all of them and just wanted to simply perform for others? Didn't almost didn't really matter how he was performing. He just loved to perform. I, I guess if you break Rudy down, his ultimate goal was to be a star. You know, he thought he was a star and he wanted to be a star. However, that might have come about, uh, whichever avenue that, that took off was the one that he pursued. He would have preferred to have been a singer. Uh, being a singer was his, I guess you could say, his great performance love. Um, Rudy wasn't, I guess you could say, that great of a singer. You know, he wasn't uh, up there with, you know, Little Richard and James Brown. And and But I, I do uh, truly believe that Rudy's vocal material does have uh, some some value. And he was he was kind of he was at the right place at the right time. And he would mention to me that, you know, in, in kind of, a, uh, you know, in sadness that he felt like he was he was he was there when he needed to be. And he believed that he had the formula that he needed to break through. And, and I will say that uh, Rudy isn't necessarily uh, original. He's not very original, so to speak. And I'll, and I'll use that uh, and not, not, a, not detrimentally, but, you know, when he saw a trend happening, then he, w- he would follow that trend. Uh, you know, we can use, uh, um, I think some of the examples I use in the book is, you know, Little Richard um, uh, has a song and then Rudy does one like, you know, Robbie Dobby. And so he would just kind of, he kind of plays off of what's popular at that time. And when you, when you put him in, in chronology of when his vocal recordings started, um, his first one came in, in, I believe it was January of 1956. Um, he was on federal records, uh, which also had signed James Brown. And I, I believe, you know, if, if memory is correct, and I don't want to be the guy that just says, you know, I think I say it in the book. Um, but of course, all of this and more is in the book. Um, but chronologically by catalog number, I believe James Brown's first single, uh, was the one just prior to Rudy's first single. So he was right there, uh, you know, at kind of the, the birth of this to a degree. And, uh, he just, he just couldn't, couldn't make it hit, but he was always constantly trying to make something happen. He sort of fell into doing the comedy when he was in the military and he, he worked, uh, he was in a, a special forces unit that were uh, just going around and entertaining servicemen uh, through Germany and such. And uh, one time there was a, an act that was late coming on stage and someone from the crowd yelled, you know, tell a joke. 
And Rudy was familiar with a, a woman named Caldonia Young who had done comedy. And uh, I guess she was a contortionist and other things. And um, uh, famous in, in that, that Cleveland area. Uh, so Rudy told a joke that he had known from her material. And he said he, he, it went over really well. And so that kind of planted the bug for him to start doing comedy. Um, he sort of would, would put that in his act a little bit here and there. Um, you know, break up the, just, you know, wasn't just singing a song after a song. And, and uh, you know, I mean, back in those days, they had what you, I guess you would call floor shows. You You wouldn't have what we have today where, you know, an artist comes out and plays their hour set and that's the end of their, the end of their, uh, their gig. Um, many of these were in clubs where they would have three or four shows a night. You know, you might have a eight o'clock and a nine o'clock and a 10 o'clock. And sometimes these would go until, you know, one or 2 AM. Um, usually the set would be about 15 minutes. So, you, so sometimes, uh, Rudy as a host, like at the Californian club would come out and do a little bit of his stuff and then he'd introduce the next act. And then maybe an hour later, he'd come back on. Um, so he would use the comedy w- within that. It wasn't until 1961 that he did his first comedy album, which was released on Duto Records, which at the time uh, had all of Red Fox's material. And uh, it was very mild. You know, it, I guess we could say it was risque for the time. It had you know, double entendre type of uh, material, you know, where you would, you know, call a cat a pussy or, or things like that. Um, but nothing, uh, uh, too explicit. And, uh, he did a couple more, uh, a couple that he actually uh, released on his own. Uh, one was called the beatnik scene that he did in 62, which, which I kind of, uh, note that it was probably outdated before the record even hit the shelves, you know, beatnik material. I mean, it was, uh, you know, most people, if they ever think of beatniks, uh, I guess they think of Maynard G. Krebs from uh, the Dobie Gillis uh, TV show, um, you know, that that was on in the in the 60s. Um, but I mean, he, he just he he what actually had happened was that he as, as the movie shows, uh, Rico, the wino did did come into the store. And as Rudy would make the comment, he put the touch on me, meaning that he was begging for, for money. And Rudy would give him a, a quarter or two, and Rico would tell these tales. And, and that did inspire Rudy to, to do that. And, and what actually happened, and they show this in the film, is he did go and record some of them. Um, but Rudy was also, he wanted to take things to a different level. Um, so, but he was, he was nervous, you know, there, there were, there were artists, uh, and, um, record companies who had been in some legal trouble for risque material and, you know, um, you know, Lenny Bruce had been arrested for things that he said on stage, uh, George Carlin had, had you know, and within a couple of years of, of, uh, Rudy's, uh, eat out more often had been arrested. Uh, so, so there was some fear of you know, potential legal issues. But Jimmy Lynch had an album that was selling really well at Dolphins. And the 
punchline on the record. I mean, the whole record is 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 risque, but it, until the very end, there's a joke about a uh, a guy who's essentially he's having sex with a gorilla, and the gorilla has a muzzle on, and the 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 big punchline, the buildup is something to the effect of that he's enjoying it. So he says, you know, take the muzzle off the motherfucker. I want to kiss it. And uh, that was selling really well at Dolphins. So that piqued Rudy's curiosity. And so he went and met Jimmy Lynch. I believe it was in Detroit. And um, when he got there and, he, you know, he asked Jimmy, you know, have you had any issues with this? And Jimmy said, you know, no. And, and uh, Rudy's, you know, well, I'm a comedian, you know, I'm a singer and I'm looking for some new material. And I think this is a, a direction that I want to go. And, you know, Jimmy just said, well, you know, go on with it. And so, but Rudy didn't want to just throw in one F word and he wanted to take it all the way as far as he could. And, you know, they, they show that in the film where he, he he can't really get anybody to support his his album and when he recorded that it was recorded in his apartment uh you know similar to what the uh the uh, movie shows um they give a good nod in that scene when they kind of unveil Rudy uh after the little introduction and he has a turban on because when he would sing in the 50s uh he would wear a turban and he called himself Prince Dumar so that gives a, a good reference to to that you know old period of before when he was being trying to be a singer, um, uh, you know. And, and there's there's a lot of little little details in Dolomite is my name that I'm very impressed by. Uh, for example, when they go to record that album, uh, you know, you you kind of see them walking up some stairs, going to the apartment, and at that time, you know, whether it was intentional or not, uh, but Rudy did live on a second floor apartment um he had a big apartment upstairs above a restaurant i believe it was and he was uh renting rooms to ben taylor and and t tony and and some other comedians would come and go um that he had produced albums for um but it, i guess it had this kind of like big open living room space and that's where where he would set up and and recorded that there was not a live band performing you know in the background for that, um, they, he went and recorded, uh, that music after the fact, uh, to mix it in. Um, but uh, you know, one thing that, that is very impressive to me about that album and, and what he, he, he got and, and what he built out of that and, and continued to have success for, for a few years was, um, it was very, it was very planned out. You know, and, and, you know, to, I guess to, uh, you know, take a peek behind the curtain, it, it has the appeal that it was recorded in a live club. It has the, uh, there's, it feels like it's, there's spontaneity to it, but in all actuality, it was a pre-planned thing. Rudy did have a, a party for his friends. He, you know, vodka and orange juice and, and, you know. We're having a party. So in, in one way, it truly is a party record. Like they actually had a party when they recorded it. And, but they knew what they wanted. And at certain points, they would kind of point to, you know, everybody needs a laugh. And, you know, 
and not that they were holding up a sign that says applause or anything, but it was something similar to that, um, where they were, were, were making it do what it needed to do. And, uh, although the film shows him performing it live, he never actually had performed that material live. Uh, but that does give a, a really great, um, it, it is a really great moment where you can see people kind of go, wait a minute, you know, what is this? And, and I think that's what people were doing when they heard those albums. Um, and it, it was kind of funny because I, I actually, I was down on set for the film um, when they were shooting those early scenes at the very beginning of the movie when he's in Dolphins and, and, um, and there was lunchtime or something. And I was sitting there with, with Larry, one of the screenwriters, and I had mentioned that I was, I was kind of planning on making a, a, like a YouTube video because I have all the, uh, the individual uh, track breakdowns of a lot of those albums. So I have, you know, just the, the crowd response and, you know, bef the, before it's all mixed together. Um, so I can hear, I can hear everybody's little bits uh, as they needed. And, and I had made a comment that I wanted to kind of take, take that and make a video where you have, you know, Rudy starting to do his material and then the music kind of fades into it. And then you had to have the crowd fade into it. So you can see like the, you know, all those pieces melting together to make the final product. And, uh, and Larry just looked at me and said, well, we did that in the movie, you know? And, it, and that's, that's kind of that scene where, where he goes up on stage and starts to do the signifying monkey. And then Ben Taylor shows up and, and starts to add a little piano to it. And, you know, and, and it was the same thing. So it was like, we were on the same wavelength, uh, you know, in a certain way to kind of show, how that all came together. Which of course in a movie, it, that's, that's a great way to do that, to, to visually see that as opposed to it. I mean, it'd be more difficult to do that in a movie where you're where like on an actual album where the person that's listening to it is not there while it's being recorded. So when in a live setting, you kind of see all that at the same time and people's reaction to it, like you were saying uh, in that way, it makes, it sounds like not necessarily how it happened, but great, a great way to, to, to show that. I think if anybody was going to be overly critical about Dolomite is my name, it would have been me. Um, it, 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 it actually took me several viewings to just let it go a little bit. Um, I mean, again, I've, I've, I lived with this for, for almost 30 years. Um, and, and so uh, not that I did not enjoy it when I first saw it. And to be honest with you, I actually cried uh, you know, I, I had a private screening at, at, at Netflix before the movie came out, um, which was a really cool experience. And I just kind of sat there and there was a couple scenes where I just I just started crying because it was it was, you know, on my own side, it was this was a personal journey that I always wanted to see fulfilled. And and, and not that it happened because of me. Um, this was kind of like the culmination of of all of the things that I've been trying to, to get going and, and, and all the promotion that I've done for, for Rudy over the years, even after his passing. And I just imagined like, you know, how he would have felt seeing, seeing this, you know, and it was hard not to get choked up about, uh, about all of this happening. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. 
And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You mentioned a few things in there I wanted to touch on. And um, one being like uh, the Rico and and the telling the stories and, and really recording it. And then, uh, you know, going back and turning him in, in the movie, it, it looks like he's taking these stories and kind of old jokes, including signifying monkey and, and Dolomite and things that seem to the impression I got from the movie, at least were there beforehand, but he, then he kind of takes it and makes it his own. And then we do see that the first time that he brings the Dolomite character out, you know, he's, he's wearing a tux and a wig and he just immediately catches the attention. What was, what, did he perform it live at all? Was like the first time that people saw this, what was the reaction? Well, it, it wasn't until people heard the records that they started calling him to come out and perform those, those uh, pieces. Um, so at that point, when, when it became such a huge success, uh, you know, that became the core of his, of his material. And uh, that album, Eat Out More Often, that, that they, they show, uh, and it's fairly accurate too, where they're, you know, stamping it with a hand stamp in, in, in his living room and assembling the records, uh, was, was essentially what Rudy did. He only had a, a few hundred dollars to, to press up. Uh, I estimate probably 3,000 copies um, that he pressed up they were actually blank sleeves and he had a, a rubber stamp for everything. One was that little devil logo, um, which, you know, as they say, you know, why the devil logo? Well, I want these things to look illegal. Like you're not supposed to have it, which, which to, to, to Rudy's credit, like that was a huge selling point. And, 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 you know, all of these were just hand stamped on the cover and he did sell them while he was in dolphins uh, they were under the counter. And any other place locally that had them, they were they were under the counter. Rudy was concerned, again, that he could get busted for this. Um, but some of the chronology in the film is a little bit different, that he had already released his own version when he took it to Laugh Records. And his what happened was Laugh wanted to give him, I don't know, $1,700 or $2,000 or something, something small like that. And they wanted to put Johnny Otis's name on there because they were working with Johnny Otis, who's a famous uh, uh, 
singer, band leader. You know, he did the song, The Hand Jive. And, you know, uh, Johnny Otis is a really fascinating figure if you want to go back and look at uh, someone from that time period. But he was kind of having these, I guess you could say, showcases that were being recorded and released on Laugh Records. You know, Johnny Otis presents Skillet Leroy and things of that nature. Um, So they wanted to throw Johnny Otis's name on Rudy's album as well. And Rudy just like, why would I... Why would I sell you my record for two grand or $1,700 or whatever it was when I already have orders for like a thousand records from another, you know, distributor down the street. And Rudy was act was really in tune with uh, the music industry, at least in Los Angeles at that time, uh, much different than, than uh, the way things were, you know, even in the eighties. And of course now, but because he worked at dolphins, he knew all the record distributors in the area. He knew where to go. You know, Dol- John Dolphin had his own record labels. So Rudy knew everything that John would do, where he would get records, records uh, pressed, where he could get the labels made, where you take them to, you know, the distributors that he would pick up records from and drop off records from. So he already, he already had all those details. So he was, he was uh, very well informed and it wasn't super difficult for him to, to get that record around locally. But he realized that, you know, if you're offering me $1,700 or whatever it was, that it's got to be worth a lot more than that. And he, Rudy claimed that he, he felt like he had a hit within 20 minutes because he did play it in the store in Dolphins. And he said that within 20 minutes, he had 10 people coming in saying, well, what was that record you were playing? I want to I wanna copy of that. And he was smart enough to realize, like, I, I, I'm onto something. And, and kind of going back to your, your comment, uh, a lot of these were uh, pre-existing stories, and they can go back. Uh, if you take the Signifying Monkey, there's a book written. It, it goes back something like 500 years, uh, the origin of that story. And most of these were were uh, tall tales and brags that were primarily told, you know, on street corners and barber shops and jail. Um, you know, guys would be out, you know playing dice and, and bullshit. And, and it, it was just, in some ways you could say it was a rite of passage. Uh, it was just a, a way for guys to kill time. And when, uh, the, the, it was encouraged to embellish on these, these stories. So kind of the best storyteller would be like the, the cool guy of the group. So if, if you weren't the best at telling it, you know, it could, you wouldn't be the one who they'd be like nudging saying, dude, you know, hey, hey, tell, you know, tell, tell a pool shooting monkey, you know. So there, there were a lot of these and, and some of them had been documented in, I believe, in the 60s uh, by a couple of professors. And there are a, a few books about them. And there had already uh, been a couple instances where these uh, tales had been recorded. And actually, this takes us back to Johnny Otis. Uh, he had a group called, um, uh, what were they called? Uh, Snatch in the Poontangs, which was a uh, uh, kind of a, a, you could say, a, a proto-funk band that did uh, a version of Shine in the Great Titanic and, and some other tales on there, uh, more as musical numbers. And so it, this wasn't completely uh, unknown material, especially within the black community. Um, you know, cu- culturally, uh, there were a lot of people that, that of course, 
had maybe heard their uncles or their fathers or 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 people in the neighborhood um, telling a lot of these these stories. Um, so one of the things that I that I attribute to part of the success of those is the there's sort of a familiarity to them. You know, the, these are these are tales that people grew up with, um, p- that people may have even recited to others. Uh, you know, and and if we go back and we look at it, Rudy was the first one. It, well, he wasn't the first one to commercialize it, but he was the first one to be successful, I believe, at commercializing it. You know, like I said, that Snatch in the Poontangs album had a couple of, of those those tracks on there, um, which came out in 69, I believe it was, which predates Rudy's album, Eat Out More Often by a Year, uh, or technically it's probably just a couple months. But, uh, you know, we have to remember that records came out so quickly back then. And, and when Rudy knew he had that success, um, just like it shows in the movie, he, he hooks up with Kent Records. Um, but Kent Records uh, wasn't unknown to him. Rudy had already had his uh, 1962 uh, Beatnik scene album was on Kent Records. Um, he had a couple uh, vocal 45s, not a lot of material from Kent, um, but they already knew him. And, and when they saw that he was making, you know, he was selling all these records locally, that's when they, they brokered a deal with him. And pretty much just said, do whatever you want. We'll release it. Um, and they gave him, interestingly, uh, they gave him like the California distribution. So he had his own label, his Comedian International label. And then Kent would distribute it nationally. And so uh, if, you, if you get real deep into collecting Rudy's material, you'll, you'll find the majority of those comedy albums, there's a version that's on comedian international and then one on kent although they're they're identical in in material and almost in in uh, their artwork you know usually it's just a transposition of of a logo uh, between which one and, and and generally speaking if you have those that are on comedian international, you're gonna have a a, a a more a rarer version because those weren't pressed in you know nationally distributed numbers there is a uh person in the movie we haven't talked about yet and it's a woman named lady reed she goes by the stage name queen b and she opens for dolomite in a lot of the shows but we don't get a lot of information about kind of who she was similar to i guess the way they did it for rudy you know they don't show a lot of backstory for some of these characters can you fill in her story and how she got associated with rudy unfortunately there's not really a lot known about uh, her name's nancy nancy reed um and and she had passed before I really got into uh, working on this book. I mean, my, my introduction to Rudy was when I was 17 years old in 1991. Uh, a couple years after that, I was able to to make contact with him. And then in 2001, I basically said, Rudy, I'm writing a book about you. And that's when it, you know, officially uh, started from there. But, you know, she had already passed. Uh, Rudy often, uh, if if he was... You know, if he felt hurt by something, you know, if, he, if there was a lot of emotion involved in things, he, it would be very hard for him to, to, uh, you know, open up. And I remember he had told me once that, that after, uh, you know, we'll just call her Lady Reed. After Lady Reed had passed, I believe he wasn't even notified by the family or invited to, to her funeral. And, and so that hurt him so much because they were incredible friends. And and so it was always very hard for me to get 
you know, full details uh, about her. And, and even those who were in that, that group uh, often didn't really have a lot of uh, background uh, about her. So it's, it's kind of the majority of what you see in the movie where she talks about, you know, being a background singer in New Orleans and, you know, having a young son. Um, you know, the, that's relatively like the majority of what was known uh, or what I was able to find out about her. I believe she had come to California for some type of inheritance. And the way that they actually had met was she was kind of hanging out with other friends and would show up at Rudy's gigs. And, and, and she was uh, kind of interested in what he was doing. And then they became friends. And so he produced a couple albums for her. Um, she wrote a, a piece called uh, My Day Has Arrived that he, that he recorded. Um, and, but they, they were... Uh, they were really close friends and, um, you know, it's a shame that, that, you know, I wasn't able to, uh, uncover more, uh, about her. Um, you know, I mean, she gets, she gets her due. She's in the movie and, uh, you know, she was, a an, an integral part of, of that crew that, that Rudy had. The next major plot point, we do see her with Rudy and, and Jimmy and Ben, and they're going to see a movie, a comedy called The Front Page. And throughout the whole thing, it's kind of funny. Everybody's laughing, and the, these four friends are just like, they're just, they don't find it funny. It's not funny at all. But Rudy is very intrigued because he gets the idea that, you know, movies will let him be everywhere all at once, and there's no need for touring. But he, can't convince the studio to make movies. So just like he did with the comedy album, he decides he's going to put up the money himself. Uh, he figures $70,000 is what he can get. And, and what's made plus the record company kind of sends some money as well. How well did the movie do portraying Rudy basically taking the reins to make his own movie? Uh, again, they, they, uh, you know, I'm going to just keep gushing about the film. I mean, I, I try truly, I, I just love the movie and, and, and you know, any way that they, they, you know, modified things, you know, I, I think was brilliant. Uh, you know, the idea that they went to this theater and saw this just, I mean, the whitest of white movie they probably could have, could have went and saw, um, you know, and, and I just, I love those reactions when they come out, you know, this is bullshit, you know, it wasn't titties or Kung Fu or, like this movie sucked. <laughs> so this is supposed to be a comedy. They didn't laugh the entire time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like this. Yeah, this was not funny at all. And uh, that that's not really that's not the reality of of what happened. You know, it wasn't like they went and saw a movie and Rudy just had this this grand idea. Like, but the way that 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 they present that, you know, it's brilliant. You know, you see that light coming down and you think like, you know, just like, I mean, uh. The way those guys write things, and I just I'm always in awe of the work that they do. So I mean, I, I couldn't be more happy that they were the ones that that wrote this. Nobody could have done it the the way that Scott and Larry did. But the reality is that Rudy had already had plans to uh, make films by '72, um, and also by '72 he already had a, like a couple dozen records out. He was putting records out like every three months. I mean, there was an avalanche of, of Rudy Ray Moore records. You know, Rudy was smart enough to go like, you know, my shit's hot right now, so I'm just going to, uh, you know, we're just going to keep keep unloading on people. And, and, and so in 72, he had an idea, you know, I want to get myself on, on, on the screen. Not really with any true idea of what that would be, just thinking like, you know, I should be in a movie. 
Um, I believe he may have gone to uh, American International Pictures at one point early on and and discussed it. Um, they were pretty much the, I guess you could say, the the primary black exploitation uh, studio. They were doing all the the Jack Hill movies and Pam Greer and and you know Fred Williamson and so so all the all all the best stuff was coming out through AIP. Um, but as with everything else that he'd ever done, uh, you know, nobody really supported him. And so he, he knew again that he had to, he, I mean, he, he told me flat out, no one was going to put me on the screen. So I had to do it myself. And so he, he got the ball rolling and actually that would have started at the tail end of 1973, where he got the idea for, for, uh, uh, you know, to make a film, didn't know what it was going to be. And there, there's some some key players in here that that uh, you know are missing from the film, and, and justifiably so because they just even though parts of their uh, they are integral to the progression of things, um, you're not going to introduce a character for you know three lines of dialogue and then never see them again. Um, but Rudy had a friend named Jeannie Marie, and uh, there there is a reference uh, we could say to Jeannie Marie in the film where. Uh, when Rudy introduces Lady Reed and they sing that song, uh, you know, if I was a little bitty girl and had a whole lot of money, um, uh, that song was actually sang by Rudy and Jeannie Marie on uh, the Eat Out More Often album. Um, but again, that's a great way to introduce Lady Reed to the, you know, to the crowd and, and show that she's going to do some, some raunchy stuff herself. And, and, you know, they kind of, in a way she was one of the boys. Um, but Jeannie Marie and Rudy were, friends for a long time and she kind of worked as a secretary uh, for him for many years and uh, she was really integral because she had met uh, Jerry Jones and so she introduced Rudy to Jerry Jones saying you know my friend Rudy wants to make a movie you're a screenwriter or you know you've written plays and such and, and brings Jerry Jones into the fold now the uh, the way they meet Jerry in the movie again is not is not accurate um but it, you know, it's I love that scene too, and and, and I will say that um, you know Jerry Jones was a close friend of mine, and, and many of the people portrayed in the in the film, Jimmy Lynch, uh, Ben Taylor, are, are you know are, are still close friends of mine. Unfortunately, we lost Jimmy last year. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, when it comes to portrayals of the people, uh, I see the most of Jerry Jones in in that portrayal. Uh, you know, Jerry was very matter of fact and uh, serious you know took his work serious but not but not too serious uh, but you know when i see that it really makes me think like you know like you know there's jerry you know and so it just it sort of went from jerry had a uh, an acting school that he ran um so jerry came in to write the script jerry was involved heavily in the uh uh, casting because he had that acting school where he brought a lot of uh, people in. Uh, Jerry also, as I said, brought in Dervil Martin. Uh, Jerry also knew Nick von Sternberg who shot the movie because they had worked together on a previous project. So he brings in, in Nick. So it, it ultimately Jerry Jones may be the most integral figure in the creation of, of Dolomite than, than anybody. Um, you know, he really was the one who brought, so many of those elements together uh, to do that. Of course, Rudy had to be the one to finance it. 
and, and like they like like in the film, he was able to get an advance on his royalties and money that he already had, and he thought he was going to be able to make that movie for seventy thousand dollars. It did run out of money, uh, not necessarily the exact same way that it shows in Dolomite is my name. Uh, I believe they had they completed the filming, but sort of as they hint in the film, there was no money to edit it or do sound or any poster or anything like that. So they don't really uh, they don't really show the struggle that Rudy had. Again, there's so many things you got to cover in, in the film. You're not going to have 40 minutes of Rudy struggling to to do things. You know, it just it, you know, there, it would just be boring as hell. But in reality, it took Rudy 13 months traveling the country doing his his material, you know, performing gigs and such and whatever money he was still making off of his records, which wasn't as much as he was earlier in the 70s because, uh, you know, his sales had, had dropped off incrementally, uh, you know, throughout the years. Of course, you know, he floods his own market, but then you also... Everybody else goes, I'm not going to go to jail if I say the F word a thousand times on a record. So everybody follows suit, you know, and now not only has Rudy flooded his own market, but everybody else is doing is doing that, too. Um, so he ended up having to, to basically, you know, he says, you know, I walked to the country to finance that that movie. And he was able he'd make a couple grand, send it back home, made edit a little bit. They you know, maybe shoot a couple scenes that they needed. Um, and finally, after 13 months, I think the ultimate budget came out to twice that. It was 140 grand when he was finally able to complete it. And it, depending on Rudy's mood or what the conversation was, uh, he would either you know be a champion to that low budget or he would be embarrassed by it. So it just depended on you know how how that broke down. You know, yeah, if you look at 140 grand to make a movie, uh, you know, the the stuff that AIP was doing is probably 300,000, 400,000, you know, for their low, their low end. You know, here you've got somebody who's doing something that's like a third, a third of that, um, you know, and, and it's, it's a shabby, it's a shabby movie. You know, it, no one knew what they were doing really on the film. No one really had much, if any. Uh, professional experience, you know, and, and it shows, but, you know, people like to say, you know, that it's, that it's a bad movie. You know, I always go back to when people would say that, you know, Ed Wood's plan nine from outer space is the worst movie ever made. Like, you know, maybe they're, maybe they technically suck, but they're not, you know, there, there's entertainment value there. You know, sometimes I, you know, and I've, I've often commented that Dolomite is, a movie you can laugh at and laugh with, Cause there's a lot of things that just are absurd or hokey or maybe just don't work. Um, you know, the, the, the martial arts is, is, is choppy. There's, you can see scenes where, you know, the foot is six inches away from the face when they're, when they're kicking and, and, you know, but when I first saw Dolomite, it, it was, it was, I mean, obviously I guess we could say it's a life-changing experience because I spent the next 30 years trying to find out who this man was and, and everything that, that he had done in his life. But, you know, it, it was like a bomb went off. It was something that is, is unexplainable. And, but I was just so intrigued. It was, it was just cool and it was weird 
And and it was just kind of like, what in the hell is this? You know? Yeah. And so pr prior to, uh, and, and they show this in the film, you know, Rudy does what, what they call four-walling. And again, this was another one of my kind of uh, uh, bonehead moments when I was with Scott and Larry going over the script. And I'm sitting there saying like, hey, Rudy knows what four-walling is. Like, why are we, why, why are we telling this? And he's like, well, duh, Mark, the audience doesn't know what four-walling is. So we're going to have the theater owner explain this to Rudy. So the crowd understands, you know, <laughs> and it's like, okay, you know, and you know, and that's what he did. He showed it in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, you know, they, they show that where, and he did play at Gordy's Lounge, just like they show in, in the film. Um, and it went over well. And then he showed it again at the end of March. These were both in, in March, March of 1975. Um, and then at the end of March, he showed it uh, at another location. And then he took it back. Uh, he went back to uh, Los Angeles and he really only took it to two studios. He went to American International Pictures. They turned it down. Uh, Rudy always would tell the story that uh, supposedly the they had uh, you know a, a black man that would watch the the potential black exploitation product, and he would say yes or no. You know, he was kind of like their gatekeeper of what was good and what wasn't. And and then that person turned it down. And according to Rudy, and who knows if this is just true or or if it's just one of Rudy's great stories that after Dolomite became a success, that they supposedly fired that guy at, at American International. Um, I'm going to say it probably more so, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of those stories that Rudy liked to tell versus, you know, I think I joke in the book that who knows, maybe the guy showed up late too many times to work or, or got fired on his own. And it wasn't just because Dolomite became successful. Um, but Rudy always liked to tell uh, great stories. But, uh, but yeah, it, the second place that they took it to was Dimension Pictures, and, uh, you know, who, who released it uh, nationally. And, and, and I will say that the sometimes if, if, if I go back and, and we sort of compare, and, and there are comparisons that we can make with Dolomite is my name and Ed Wood, um, not just, you know, by the screenwriters, but also uh, some, some critics had said, you know, this is kind of like Ed Wood Part 2. Because uh, they have similarities in their in their careers where nobody would, you know, nobody supported them, but just through like you know sheer force of will, they were able to complete, uh, you know, whatever it is that they were trying to do. And uh, you know, while the ending of Ed Wood is this you know triumphant uh, premiere of Plan Nine from Outer Space, and everyone's giving him a standing ovation, and it's like this amazing thing, you know, that's not something that ever happened. In that film, to me, that's that's sort of like Ed Wood's dream. You know, he's he's imagining like my movie's going to premiere and everybody's going to cheer and it's going to be like the greatest thing ever. But for Dolomite is my name, when they show that premiere at the end of the movie, that's accurate. That was at the Woods Theater. There were people lined up around the block for hours. And, and and as they say, like you hear the the theater manager say something like, you know, we're gonna you know show another showing at two, and and they kept that thing open for like three or four showings more than what what was happening. And I remember uh, Jerry Jones telling me about that night because it's sort of similar to how they're driving it. Holy shit! Like look at all the people out here. Um, the theater owner had called Rudy in in the hotel room. And was like, there's all kinds of people out here. 
you know, and they, they want, you know, you guys should come down. And so he looks at Jerry and says, you know, like they, they want us to go. And Jerry's like, let's go, man, let's go down there. And when Jerry got out of the car, I'm specifically remember him telling me that there were so many people there and there was so much energy that he felt like he just floated out of the car, you know, just in, like floated out of the car into the theater. And, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, it's, it's kind of emotional if you think about it everything that Rudy went through just to get that movie on a screen and then to have an experience like that, where, where, I mean, people were, according to lady Reed, I think there was, you know, they were circling the block three or four times, people waiting for that, for that movie to play. And, and Rudy did just what is shown in Dolomite is my name. He hung outside. He entertained people. He, he told me that he walked through that line and shook everybody's hand saying thank you for coming to see my movie. I mean, that's a testament to the kind of person that he is too. I mean, because you think about a lot of stars today, you know, going in their movies, they're not out, you know, shaking everybody's hand and all that kind of stuff out, outside the theater, that's for sure. <laughs> so, some of it, you know, of course, it's genuine appreciation. Um, uh, I mean, imagine if you had pretty much everything in your life riding on something. You know, if this movie failed, Rudy was done. You know, who knows if he would have ever recovered uh, financially from this. You know, he'd have lost his own investment. Like they show in the movie, he would have, you know, he would have been in debt to the record company uh, for future royalties. So he, he bet everything on this. And, you know, and, and, and he always was a showman. You know, th this is a guy who, who, you know, spent his life, you know, performing in, in the Chitlin circuit. I believe there was a part in the movie that they had cut out. Um, I'd love to see the footage someday if, if, if they ever make it available. But I think there's a scene where they go and they actually are walking through like a cow pasture, uh, you know, Rudy and Lady Reed, um, for Dolomite is my name. They're walking through a cow pasture to perform in a barn. And they had performed in a barn. Um, anywhere that they could have a performance was, was where, where they would go. And, you know, that's really all Rudy ever knew was you know, pounding the pavement. Um, that's how he made his records a success. You know, it wasn't just that he, he found success, uh, you know, with eat out more often in Los Angeles, he drove around the country and, and, you know, where you kind of see him in, in, uh, Dolomite is my name where he's selling records out of his trunk. You know, that was, that was Rudy's reality. He drove all over the country and he would oftentimes without even a gig booked, he would show up in town, uh, book himself a gig. You know, he would find people. He would pass out records. He would say, you know, he maybe, you know, if we put a timeline on it, let's say he shows up in a town on a Monday. He goes, who knows? He goes to the truck stop. He goes, where, you know, into the the African American section of town, and he he would find like pimps and hookers and people that he that he thought were like fun loving looking people. He'd give them a record, say, you know, go home and play this share it with your friends. And by the way, Friday night, you know, I'll be performing at such and such a club. And so the, he just built word of mouth constantly everywhere he went. And it's, you know, you're not seeing uh, eat out more often uh, being advertised to any great degree in magazines, or it's not getting played on the rec on the radio. I mean, there's almost nothing out there 
that's that's propelling this record forward other than Rudy. You know, and and for the for for Edel more often to to place on they had a soul charts at the time in, in Billboard magazine. It it broke the top fifty in the soul charts. I you know, there there was I, I think believe there was a comedy chart at the time, but because Rudy's stuff was so out there, um, you know, he wasn't appearing in the same uh, category as Bill Cosby. Um so they were putting him in the soul charts. Um and when he did his his next album, which was called This Pussy Belongs to Me, that even got into the charts. So he was the first, what he calls soul comic, to have two albums at the same time charting on the, the, the soul album charts. So it's just, I mean, I, the, the more I learned about him, I mean, how can you not admire his tenacity and his drive? I mean, this guy was just, I mean, his career was his entire life. You know, it, it was, it meant everything to him. And it's unfortunate that he never was able to, you know, bask in his own glory, so to speak. Uh, you know, he never, uh, he never got rich. Uh, you know, it's just, this one of those similar stories that so many artists have had where, you know, people end up making all the money off of you. You know, Rudy, Rudy was so busy putting out material that he wasn't necessarily paying attention to the business side of things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm without a doubt, I know that, that he was probably owed quite a bit more than he received. Um, you know, and, and, you know, in my eyes, he should have been living in a mansion, you know, up in the Hollywood Hills. But, you, you know, you had a guy who, who was just kind of like living in an assisted living retirement place, you know, close to the end of his life. And, and, uh, the, the fact, you know, it, it was very, kind of hurtful to him and and when you get you know you, you start to more mortality sets in you start to get to the you know the twilight years of your life and you're reflecting on things and and you know there it gets kind of like with the budget of dolomite you know rudy was proud to always have been you know pounding the pavement and making everything that happened in his life happen basically you know through his own inertia but there's a sadness to that too like you know, how hard have I worked and this is all that I've gotten out of it? Or, or at this point, you know, like, like, you know, where is the money? Like, I still have to go out and work to survive, you know, and, and you have a guy who's still basically doing the same thing, you know, in the early 2000s as he was doing mid seventies, playing a small club and, and, you know, but that's what Rudy was, you know, he wasn't an arena performer. You know, and, and so, um, you know, it, it's, it's sad in some ways, but it's also, it, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a brilliance to him and what he did. And, and I think it's amazing that it's, that from my own latitude, you know, that I was able to document that and it's able to, to be presented in this film. Um, you know, the, that's people like that, that's a dying breed, you know? That's that stuff does not happen anymore. And the same thing with Jimmy Lynch, you know. And Jimmy Lynch is actually probably the biggest. Uh, uh, what's the word I want to use here? I guess I could say having Jimmy Lynch in the movie is maybe the biggest exaggeration uh, that they use in in Dolomite is my name. Um, and, and when I say that is he absolutely deserved his character. 
to be represented in that film. But the reality was that uh, Jimmy was never there during the making of Dolomite. Uh, he, he actually shows up for like a, a cameo in the original Dolomite and gets a name drop because um, Jimmy was only in town for like one day for filming and he shows up and did that because Jimmy himself was a, a singer and a comedian and an entertainer. And he was on tour at that time when Dolomite was being filmed. So he just happened to be coming into town when they were shooting it, was able to make a cameo. But Jimmy was instrumental in Rudy's entire career. I mean, not only the fact that that when they met, you know, uh, he had already done, you know, a motherfucker on a record that, that inspired Rudy to take it further. Um, but Jimmy was always there to help Rudy with his material, help him with all of his films. Jimmy was a set designer. He can carpenter. He, he could do everything. He made his own clothes. So when you the following movies like Human Tornado, Petey Wheatstraw and Disco Godfather, and even when Rudy did his uh, Dolomite Explosion film, you know, Jimmy was a big part of all of that. And um, when you when you got those two together, and, and if you if you add Cliff Rockmore, who was the director of Human Human Tornado and Petey Wheatstraw and also worked on Disco Godfather, like the three of them, when they're all together uh, in their own ways, I think we're able to make magic. So it's great to have Jimmy represented in the film, although he, he wasn't there at the time frame that the film takes place. But you have things like, um, uh, and this is another, uh, I will say, poetic license that they used in Dolomite is My Name, where they show the bed shaking scene where the, the ceiling falls down and everything. That actually was from the second movie, The Human Tornado. And, and in some ways, people criticized them for including this. And, and, and I agree with, with Scott and Larry. Of, how could they not have included that? that? That is probably the most iconic and hilarious scene out of any one of, of Rudy's movies. Um, you know, how, how could you not include that? And there's no way they were going to be able to make a movie where they show every one of Rudy's movies being made. You know, this would be a six-hour film, and it would be the same story of, I don't have any money and how are we going to make this happen? And, you know, it's, I mean, that's every time Rudy had a new project, it was, it was like starting over from scratch, you know? Um, but to include that, I, you know, it had to be there. And that, that is one of the, the, the funniest scenes in the film. And I, and I particularly love the way that uh, they present it when you kind of have, uh, uh, you know, the Derville Martin characters kind of like, you know, looking around like, and when the bed's kind of the the room's kind of falling apart, it's just like, what, what the hell's going on in here? You know, and, and you know, they just did a, a brilliant job on that. But that was actually the whole bed shaking and the, and all that stuff. That was all Jimmy's creation. He was the one who who put the bed on casters and and cut out the ceiling and put it on wires. And they got the 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 flash powder and and so that whole setup from the human tornado was was basically like Jimmy's creation. You know, so. So he had to be in there. So I'm really glad that he was a part of that. And, you know, I will say one of the highlights of my life was being able to uh, sit there privately with, with Ben Taylor and Jimmy Lynch. Uh, you know, we saw another advanced screening of the movie at Netflix before the premiere and also having them at the premiere uh, with us, you know, they, they got their due and they deserved it as well. At the very end of the movie, um, there is some text that says Dolomite, the, the movie Dolomite was uh, one of the biggest hits of the year. And then in the early 1980s, early rappers universally acclaimed Rudy as the godfather of rap. 
So can you give us an overview of Rudy's career kind of after the timeline of the film and some of the impact that he had? Yeah, and, and it's actually really interesting. And, and it was in some ways easy. And, and this was the book was probably the most difficult thing I, I'll ever do in my life. Um, but it was easy to kind of compartmentalize his life because it's, it seemed like everything kind of happened in the you know decade increments. It, you know, so so like seventies was was comedy, but primarily like the films. You know, so he did all of his films, and then he had done Disco Godfather in nineteen seventy nine, and it was kind of an attempt to make a PG film, uh, clean up Rudy a little bit. It's a message movie. There's a there's, you know, he's 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 a disco DJ. You know, disco is is the big thing at the time, and um, there's also a PCP problem locally. So Rudy, as the disco godfather, you know, goes out and trying to, you know, put an end to the, the angel dust that's, that's infiltrating the, the area. Um, unfortunately for that movie, I mean, it is the weakest of Rudy's movies. Um, it, it's got some pretty interesting items in it, but it's sort of this mismatch of horror elements and disco music and, and a bunch of stuff that, that now we can look back at it and say, you know, this movie's out of its mind. But at the time, people were going like this, you know, what the hell's Rudy doing wearing like a disco outfit? And, you know, there was a, a, a little history too. In, I think it was July of 79, there was this big thing that they had at Comiskey Park with this uh, DJ named Steve Dahl, who had basically uh, made it his life's mission to destroy disco music. So they had this event at Comiskey Park uh, where people could bring disco records and for like, I think it was 98 cents, they could get into the baseball game, which was like the call letters of the, the radio station he worked for. And so during, during the, the break between, it was a double header. So in between the two games, they took this giant bin of all these people's disco records out into center field and exploded them. And the place erupted in like in a total riot. So it became this huge thing. They called it Disco Demolition Night. And, and although it, you can't necessarily credit that specific event for like the death of disco, but I mean, you had like, you know, 30,000 people that were just like, we hate disco and we're here to destroy it. They weren't there to watch a baseball game. They were there out of their hatred for, for disco music. And if you look at the, the, like the billboard charts, it was like just before that happened, pretty much everything in the top 10 was a disco song. And within like a week or two of that, there was like no disco on the charts. So, I mean, you can draw your conclusions. It seems like that was, that might've been like the moment where it just kind of like, that was kind of a definitive moment where disco kind of was on its way out. But Rudy's movie doesn't come out until like September. So not only are you not Rudy Ray Moore, you're also doing a theme that is now, you know, no one is interested in. So, so his movie was outdated before it even came out. He credited that movie as, you know, the one that ruined his film career. And I don't know if I could say specifically that that destroyed his film career. I mean, it definitely hurt his film career. Um, but you know, 1980 comes along, Reaganomics, uh, music's 
dramatically changing. Uh, you know, the, the, the cultural climate is, is like almost night and day from the seventies. Um, where would Rudy have been? You know, there, there really wasn't anywhere for him to go. Uh, his material was dated. His comedy material was dated. His films were dated. Um, place, the majority of the places that his films had been playing throughout the years, like the drive-ins are drying up. You know, you weren't going to go down to your local multiplex and see any of Rudy's movies. Um, you know, the, the box office blockbusters are starting to happen. You know, drive-ins are being tore down. Uh, so he, he had really nothing. He had no outlet for his, his material. So he almost like became irrelevant overnight when the eighties hit. Um, it was a really, really tough part uh, of his life. Uh, he did still have his comedy material to, to go back on. And he did continue to, to tour as much as he could and perform, you know, he's a road performer. He, he always was on the road. So at least he had that to, to continue. You, you know, you think about some of the, some of the black action stars of the seventies, you know, when those movies dried up, did they have another career to fall back on? You know, at least Rudy had comedy and, and film. So he, there was, he had a little bit of, of a variation of what he could do. Um, but he also had at the end of shooting disco Godfather, he shot a small, uh, live film, you know, live performance film. And it took him a couple of years to get that thing completed. I think it was 82 when it finally was able to be shown. But again, he was back to back to square one, driving around the country with a film print in the back of his car, trying to to get that movie shown. Uh, you know, and, and he was he was he was down and out. By the mid 80s, we'll say like 86. You know, my timeline might be off by a year or two. Um, people start to remember Rudy. And a lot of this is with, you know, hip hop and rap and people starting to sample things and records. And you have all these, these young artists who, who actually grew up on Rudy's albums, whether they were supposed to or not. A lot of them were sneaking, you know, sneaking listens to them when their parents weren't around. But, uh, you know, a, a lot of these, these artists, you know, really recall Rudy's material. It, it just really made an impression on them. You know, even, even Steve Harvey, um, had, had noted that, uh, I think he, he, he does these things cause he has a talk show and he does these little like, uh, things where he talks to the crowd beforehand and, and before the show starts and they would put him on his website and stuff. And there was one that he did where he talked about Rudy Ray Moore. And when he was a young boy, his mother had bought him a, a tape recorder, you know, it was this little single, you know, little handle and you press play and record at the same time. And the little door flips open. So he, he, for fun, the first thing he did on there was he recited, I think he was said he was like 10 years old. He recites the Rudy Ray Moore's version of signifying monkey into the recorder. And his mother somehow plays it and hears it and, you know, oh my God, you know, freaks out on him. And so Something like the story is, you know, dad's like, you know, well, I'll, I'll punish him. But his dad actually took Steve down to the barbershop and was like, you know, you got to hear my, you got to hear my son do, you know, Rudy Ray Moore signify a monkey, you know, like, and, and so, so you had this, this generation that, that, you know, it's kind of like, 
you know, when I was young, like sneaking a, sneaking a peek at dad's Playboy magazines, you know, we've all had those, those kind of like, it's just kind of like a rites of passage, you know? So their thing was looking at Ruder and Moore's record albums and going, you know, here's, here's a bunch of girls with titties out, you know, like, and, and, and what is this crazy stuff? So obviously that has an impression on them. And so these, these groups start, start sampling these things. And it, and it was primarily a two live crew. And Rudy had nothing, he, you know, he said he had nothing going on uh, and struggling to survive. And so Two Live Crew starts to sample and all these other groups starts to sample. And at first it was just, people just were liberally pulling from these old comedy albums. Uh, Two Live Crew, most of their samples all came from actually Laugh Records because they were sampling um, Lawanda Page, Skill and Leroy, early Richard Pryor, all that stuff had been out on Laugh Records. And the only other artists, that, even like Mantan Morley, um, and, and then they're also sampling Rudy stuff. And so since that sampling was kind of new, people were just doing whatever they wanted. And then after the fact, when they found out that people were sampling, then you know Rudy and whoever was working with him at the time would kind of go back and be like, hey, you know, you sampled our, our album, you know. And so they would give Rudy a little bit of money and and he just started to like he became like the main guy to sample i i think i think the 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 top three people that are sampled are um i don't know what the order would be but it's rudy james brown and parliament funkadelic you know anything like george clinton related um you know you got to think about um like dr dre's the chronic album which is like the the highest selling, most regarded, you know, hip hop rap album of all time. Uh, that thing is primarily just a bunch of Parliament samples. Uh, you know, Rudy appears on there, and, and so they just all started to give him that credit. Um, and the the idea uh, that he's you know kind of this godfather. Some of that is is propelled by his own ego. Um, you know. But there is there is some truth to it, and I and I and I discuss this at length in in the book uh, because I want uh, you know I try to give everything that Rudy's done some uh, cultural and contextual uh, you know places so that it, it, it it's valid. You know, I'm not just saying Rudy helped originate rap. You know, I'm I'm proving it in in my writing. But the the idea that he he was you know, doing these raps, if we can call them raps, they, they rhyming and he's got music in the background, although it's not like, it's not hip hop beats or anything like that. It's sort of like this, uh, funky freeform jazz kind of stuff that's going on back there. Wasn't recorded, uh, specifically to, uh, rhythmically accompany Rudy's you know, verbalizations. It was just background music. Um, but it gives this idea that, you know, music and rhyming and all of the stuff is coming coming together and and everybody just took it and went and, and ran with it and it, it almost became like you know if if you want credibility in in your career you either need to name drop dolomite or reference you know one of his his comedy albums and he just became like the go-to guy and you not only were people sampling him but he would start to make appearances on albums by two live crew Dr. Dre's album, Snoop Dogg in, in videos. Uh, you know, he did the Big Daddy Kane versus Dolomite song. Uh, and, 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 you know, the thing that I love about that song is 
that, you know, you got Big Daddy Kane and Dolomite kind of rap battling against each other. And at the end, you have Big Daddy Kane's like, oh, you know, screw it, I'm out. You know, and and, and that's like their way of giving him props. Like, you know, you, you're not going to win if you go up against Dolomite. Like, he's Dolomite, you know? So they they really embraced him. And, and you know, beautifully, that was able to to resurrect his his career. I mean, and and pretty much solely the resurrection of his career at that time. It's like I said, he had nothing going on. And a lot of people have forgotten about him. You get to the point where it's like, that guy's still alive? You know, like, he, he's not dead? Um, and so he was able to to just just work off that momentum and, and keep that rolling, you know, th- throughout the 90s. And and that's that's essentially what, what sustained him. Because album sales are low. You know, he's not he's not making any money off of album sales anymore in, in early 1980 or 81 ish. Um, Kent Records, I believe, had they completely gone out of business and they they returned all of Rudy's masters to him. Um, so he owned all of his own material, but there was no real market to to reissue those, you know, and. Ultimately, Rudy's entire career is kind of a niche of a niche. And. In the 80s and 90s, that niche didn't even exist anymore. So wh- where does he go, you know? Times have changed. <laughs> and it sounds like not only, not only that, but the the way that just the music industry is being marketed or, you know, comedy or mo- like all that changed too. So his way of marketing and, and it's not the same anymore. <laughs> well, and, and you, you got to think of it too, like he kind of pioneered things that that the rappers later later uh you know took to and i think that's uh, the the it's that street hustle you know uh rudy sold his records out of the back of his trunk he he may have been the first artist to ever do that um you know i'm i'm certainly not familiar with anybody else who was driving around the country you know listen to my filthy record i got i got a copy here in the trunk if you want to buy it you know Nowadays, if somebody came up to you, you'd think they were going to kidnap you or something like that. Like, you want to buy some speakers? You know, I remember those things when I was a kid. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's how uh, NWA and Eazy-E got started, selling records out of the back of their trunk. You know, so uh, I, the thing that I, that I think that all of those artists really identified with is just that hustle. You know, you got to hustle to make it happen, you know, and and. When, when they achieved their success, you know, they, they were very gracious to Rudy. Um, you know, even Easy e has Rudy on, a, on an intro to a song. And Eric B. and Rakim have Rudy doing videos. And so they just started to, to, to bring him along for things. And it, Rudy was really appreciative. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Dolomite Is My Name. Your book is called Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, The Authorized Biography of Rudy Remore, a.k.a. Dolomite. I'll include links to that in the show notes for this episode. So anyone listening can learn more about the true story. But before I let you go, can you give us a little teaser of your book? Maybe a, a favorite story about the ru- real Rudy Ray Moore that didn't make its way into the movie? Well, I think those are, those are the personal stories. Um, obviously, Rudy was one of a kind. You know, it, it's everybody that knew him. Uh, there, there's an affection for him. I mean, he's just, he is truly one of a kind. It, one of the things that I always thought was hilarious about him uh, is he always had nicknames for people, and uh, it was just whatever it was. It was either his way of remembering or whatnot. But um, he 
my first introduction to him was I was doing a little fanzine called Shocking Images where it was horror movies and other stuff. And so when I contacted him to do an interview for that, I wanted to include him in, in every issue that I was doing. And so whenever I would call, you know, Rudy, it's Mark. And he would say, Mark, from images that are shocking. You know, and so for, so for, for almost forever, that's, that's who I was. So he had like a nickname for everybody. And he, he always had weird hours. He seemed like he would be up all night long. And there were times when he would call me at two, three o'clock in the morning. And he would sometimes pretend in these different voices. Like one time he was pretending to be like Chinese or something. A really terrible attempt at a Chinese accent. You know, and I, oh, you know, like this kind of thing. And it's like, Rudy, what the hell are you doing? And he'd be upset. Like, oh, how'd you know it was me? You know, and it's like, like, we're like, come on, Rudy. Like, you know, and, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, that I, that I really love about the, the nostalgia that people feel about Rudy is anytime someone that knew him is telling a story about him, they always have their own kind of impersonation of him because he had this, this just one of a kind, deep baritone slow voice that was just his and everyone always like you can't help it like like somehow rudy channels through you when you're saying something that he had said and and you know it's it's i think i think it's just kind of beautiful that 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 happens every time when people start to remember him or things that they've said to him yeah well maybe that lends to why he influenced so many other creatives they just wanted to mimic him and be like him yeah i I have always said that that Rudy had the it factor, although he was the only one that knew he had it. <laughs> That's great. You know? <laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it too. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Mark Jason Murray once again for sharing his knowledge and expertise about the true story behind Dolomite Is My Name. If you want to learn more about the true story, make sure to go pick up a copy of Mark's book called Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself, the authorized biography of Rudy Ray Moore, a.k.a. Dolomite. As always, you can find links to Mark's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Rudy sold his records out of the back of his trunk. Number two, Rudy did not record his comedy album with a live band like we see in the movie. Number three, Rudy started performing at the age of 42. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Rudy sold his records out of the back of his trunk. That is true. Rudy Ray Moore was one of the first to pioneer selling his albums out of the trunk of his car as he drove around the country. It was a type of hustle outside the mainstream way of doing things that hadn't really been seen before. That brings us to number two. Rudy did not record his comedy album with a live band like we see in the movie. That is also true. 
Mark explained that even though the movie showed Rudy recording one of his comedy albums with the live band playing the backing music, in reality, Rudy recorded it onto separate tracks that he then mixed together. That means number three is the lie. Rudy started performing at the age of 42. Even though the movie starts off with Rudy as an adult, it's correct to suggest that Rudy was a performer before the timeline of the movie. There's mentions in the dialogue of how Rudy had performed before. Mark told us that Rudy's passion for performing really started around the age of 15. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help support the next episode and get ad-free versions of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.